Welcome to Defiance. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I have an interview with Christopher Balding discussing the Chinese surveillance state, free speech, and China's growing global influence. In July of last year, Christopher announced he was leaving China after nine years working for the HSBC Business School of Peking University Shenzhen Graduate School as a professor teaching international trade negotiations and ethics. In early November 2017, the HSBC school informed him they would not renew his contract. In March of 2018, they informed him they wished to sever all ties by April 1st, 2018. In a blog post, Christopher wrote, China has reached a point where I do not feel safe being a professor and discussing even the economy, business and financial markets. Christopher's criticisms of the Chinese government did not go unnoticed. And as he said in his blog post, you do not work under the Communist Party without knowing the risks. In this interview, we talk about this, as well as the expanding surveillance state in China and the persecution of the Uyghurs. But before we get into the interview, I need to welcome and thank my sponsor Kraken and their CEO, Jesse Powell, who are helping make this happen. Kraken also sponsored What Bitcoin Did, my other show which is dedicated to Bitcoin itself, an act of financial defiance. Bitcoin was introduced to the world in 2009 by its pseudonymous inventor Satoshi Nakamoto as a response to the 2008 financial crisis. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having a controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. And as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom and Kraken is the best place to buy Bitcoin. Consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange, Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com. The reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it. Resilient, resolute, defiant in the face of impossible odds. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money. Hundreds of protesters turned out singing glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of defiance. Chris, hi, how are you? Hey, glad to, glad to be here. All right, thank you for, for coming on the show. I did a bit of research beforehand, and I found out you're now living in Vietnam, and I've just been out there, had the most amazing time. It, it, it is a great country. I cannot say enough good things about it. Yeah. So let me tell you what happened. I was going to go, f- so I went to Cambodia first, just me and my two kids, and we were going to go from Cambodia, we did Siem Reap, did the temples, and we were going to go down to Phnom Penh, Ho Chi Minh, and then to this island, Phu Kok. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And somebody said, just don't go to Phnom Penh. It's, it'll be terrible, and your kids will hate it. So we changed our entire journey. We ended up starting in Hoi An. No, sorry, Hanoi. We went to the islands, and then we took a plane down to Ninh Binh. Uh-huh. Then we went to... Hoi An, which was my favorite place. And then we went to Ho Chi Minh and then home. And the best three weeks. Yeah. No, Vietnam, I cannot say enough nice things about it. The people are wonderful. It is a beautiful country. The beaches are lovely. The food is great. I've I've lived there for a year and I, I just love it. Unless they're trying to rip you off in the taxis. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I always I always take Grab. It's, it's, it's like the, the Vietnamese version of, of, of Uber yep. or Didi. So what happened was we, we got ripped off in a taxi. We got charged for a 30-minute journey, 1.2 million dong. I was like, that's about 50 quid. I mean, that's, I'm sure that's wrong. Somebody was like, get grab. So we got grab. And my son, would, he's taller than me, so he's sitting in the front. And we paid cash. And we got out. And my son gave me the change back. He'd ripped us off on the change of the grab, so we still got we still got ripped off with grab. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they will try and do that. They will try and do that. So, so you moved there. You were living in China, right? Yes, for nine years. And you felt a need to leave? 
Well, it was more that they kind of gently nudged me out the door. Right, okay. <laughs> you were dissenting too much? I, I was dissenting too much, yes. Apparently in China, you're not supposed to complain about censorship. Right. So let's get a bit of a background here. How come you ended up in China? What, what were you doing? Were you, are you a professor? Is that, am I right thinking that? Yes, I, I was a professor. So I, I, I think the, the, the more interesting story of, of how I, we ended up in China as a professor was how we ended up in China the first time. My, okay. my wife was a architect in Los Angeles, and she was building homes for rock stars in Beverly Hills. And she, she takes a new job, and it's a terrible job. Um, her boss is just screaming at her. She's like, I can't do this. So I pretend to be my wife and I start sending out her resume to headhunters. And so a headhunter starts emailing back and is like, I got this great job for you. And it's in Beijing. And I'm like, oh shit, now I'm going to have to tell her. Okay. And so I tell my wife and she's like, you got me a job, what, where? <laughs> and so it was one of the craziest China, it's one of the crazy China stories that you'll hear. They interviewed her on Tuesday. They called her back on Wednesday, said, we want, we want you to come take the next plane out to China. You're starting work Monday morning. Wow. And so knew effectively nothing about China. Didn't know anything of what we were getting into. She goes and she starts work Monday morning in China, and I follow a couple days later. And we spend about six months in China and Asia. And when I was offered a job to be a professor, we're like, let's do this. And next thing you know, we've, we've spent almost a decade of our life in China. Were you a professor already? What were you doing? I was, I was finishing up my PhD. Okay. And your PhD was in? Economics. Okay. Okay. We have uh, exams called A-levels in the UK. I don't know if you know of this. Mm -hmm. And so I, I took economics, uh, barely scraped through. <laughs> Interestingly enough, I, I mentioned to you, I have a Bitcoin podcast, and I've been recently introduced to the world of Austrian economics. I'd be interested to know if you have any opinion on that. You know, th this is one of the things, you know, as, as I'm speaking here at the Oslo Freedom Forum, is... I'm a business school professor. Mm -hmm. You know, if you'd have asked me 10 years ago about human rights in China, I probably would have said something very different. You know, it was only by living in China for almost a decade that you start looking around as you're exposed and just punched in the face with what is going on there that you're like, this is messed up. And so Austrian economics is, is, is much more of a free market type of bent. And that's, that's, you know, my general inclination for a lot of things. But once you live in China and get exposed to this, you, you walk away, I think, with very with very different perspective on what on matters and values. So interestingly, so you've, you've gone out there as a professor, uh, you know, to be a professor, your wife's gone out to design houses for, I guess, rich Chinese people this time. And through your experience, you've become essentially an activist. I, I have become uh, essentially an activist, and I, I think that's that's a different mindset for me because you know I, I really just you know started out doing research, and then you know especially as you start looking at data about things that are going on about you know the surveillance state and what's going on in Xinjiang, um, mm -hmm. and all of the things that Huawei and related companies are doing, um, it really just puts the you know the fear of God in you, not just for what's you know how that impacts China, but how that is spilling over and impacting values around the world. You know, like we've seen in the U.S. with the NBA issue. Um, yeah. I think all of a sudden people are waking up and going, wow, this is, you know, th this, this is crazy that this is happening. So we'll come to that because I'm actually glad it's happened because it's actually put it in front of people. It's made people realize what's happening in China that they didn't realize. And it's 
People having to show their cards, really, aren't they? Yeah. I think it's fantastic that Quentin Tarantino didn't bend the knee. I loved what South Park did. And I, I noticed you <laughs> changed your name on Twitter to uh, Integrity Farm, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Integrity Farm CEO. <laughs> so, so let me ask you, though, at what point did the shift become apparent to you and that you started to have this platform and this voice that people listen to? What, what was that kind of journey? And when did you realize that you what you were saying was mattering? So... People a lot of times talk to me and think that there was some grand master plan, kind of like, you know, how I ended up in China. I think a, a lot of it happened in a very similar type of way. Really what happened was I really started out writing about Singapore and China because, I'd, you know, I'd done some research on Singapore. And honestly, like I, I got on Twitter and on it, to, to be honest, I was just saying stupid stuff. I mean, it was really like making jokes about the Chinese economy. I mean, who makes jokes about the Chinese economy? And this isn't stand up comic material. It was so I it was really like my mom and a couple other economists that were, you know, reading anything I wrote. And it was one of those things just there was so little good information about China. I mean, I remember the first time I decided to, to start, decided to start writing about China was Joe Biden. And I don't mean to pick on the guy, um, but Joe Biden come out to China and it's probably like 2011, 12. And he writes this, you know, China's going to take over the world. China's the greatest place, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, this guy has no idea what life on the ground is like in China. And so I just wrote a blog post about, you know, this is, this is what's going on and people seem to like it. Okay. And it just kind of, it just kind of snowballed from there. You know, I've actually had people say, well, you know, what did you, how did you get your brand? And I'm like, I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) It just happened. (laughs) I just, I just say stupid stuff and write about the Chinese economy and tech and, you know, that's it. (laughs) Well, look, I get it. I mean, two and a half years ago, I just started writing about Bitcoin on Facebook and two and a half years later, I'm here talking to you. I mean, (laughs) I don't think any of us really planned this. Okay, so let's go back to when you you got to China, you landed, you're going to set up. I'm guessing it started to get weird at some point. Like, how was life different? And what were you experiencing going, like, this is weird. This is, because you say you were getting punched in the face and... Is it like the bureaucracy of setting up life? Do you feel like you're under surveillance? What, what's going on? So I think one of the, uh, there's a couple of things that I think a, a lot of people don't really get on a, on a day-to-day basis. And I, I think one of the things is, is freedom of speech is just such a, an ingrained part of who we are in, in Western civilization that you, you don't understand what it's like to live in constant fear that if you say something wrong, you're going to get fired, you're going to get demoted, you're going to get deported, you're going to get whatever. And that is a daily fact of, of life in China. And you know, what shaped a lot of how you talk about that journey, a lot of that happened because, you know, to be honest, I was too stupid to know any better and I made mistakes over and over again. I pissed off, you know, the, the party a couple times without even really realizing. I pissed off the university a couple times without even intending to. What were the consequences of that, though? I think because at the time, this was, you know, this was, let's say, 2009 to 2012 in the early stages. At the time, I think it was just kind of like they kind of set me aside. They weren't, they, they you know, I wasn't going to get necessarily rewarded, for lack of a better term, within the, within, because I was, as a, as a university employee, I was technically some type of pub, Chinese public employee. I mean, I was mm-hmm. almost like a civil servant of the Chinese government. And they just kind of said, we're not going to let Chris essentially like rise up the ranks. He can just kind of do his own thing. And they kind of like, you know, right. not really ostracized, but you your know, card was marked. Yeah, my card was marked. That, that's okay. a good that's a good way of putting it. 
And so I took that and I said, well, hey, I can just do almost whatever I want now as long as I kind of don't bother them too much. And it was it was really like a learning experience of like, oh, so this is how society works. You know, my my wife kind of describes me as, you know, similar to Sheldon, that I'm not good on picking up on Sheldon from Big Bang. Mm, I'm not good yeah. at picking up on nonverbal cues. And so it took me making mistakes over and over again to figure, oh, you can't, you're not supposed to say that. Oh, like. Well, these are. These are Chinese mistakes. Yes, absolutely. These, these are Chinese mistakes. These are Chinese mistakes. Yeah. And so you begin to realize, and, and I'll tell you a story I've never really said. My, my wife knows this story. The first time I got in trouble, I actually was, um, there, were, there was an incident in Singapore where an American postdoc, it's still unclear to this day whether he was murdered or committed suicide. Uh, he, was a, he was a postdoc at a Singaporean research institute doing research in microelectronics. Okay. And he had been told, he'd been telling friends he was being pressured to do research for military applications for the PLA. Um, okay. And so he decides he's going to quit his position. He's going to go back to the States. Consequences be damned. And so his girlfriend goes to pick him up, to take him to drive him to the airport, and she finds him swinging from a shower rod. And so I had people in Singapore that had been reading my stuff because I, you know, I was raising similar problems in, in Singapore. And so they, they, you know, they say, hey, do you know anything about what's going on here? And because of the research I had done, I knew the, 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 the companies that he was talking about. And so I referenced one of the Chinese companies that he said he was working with. And these are, you know, these are companies that do bad things. You know, they, these are companies that, you know, for instance, they will build the warheads that like, for instance, in Syria, that they that they put the chemical weapons in that they launch in. And these are companies, and I'm not making this up, and I, I wish I'd screenshotted it. I didn't, you know, this, this specific thing I'm about to tell you. But this company at one point, there was basically like this military eBay on the Chinese, in the Chinese internet. And basically, similar to like, if you go to the Gap website, and you could see the guy in the blue sweater, mm-hmm. imagine the same thing, except for shoulder-fired missiles. <laughs> okay? Jesus. So... On the website, and it's basically like, here's our telephone number. If you're interested in what we're selling, get in touch, and we'll, we'll quote you a price. And we're talking shoulder-fired missiles here, okay? And so I referenced this company in this blog. It was really a passing reference. Didn't think anything of it. And a couple weeks later, I get a call from my boss, and he says, uh, this company flew down a team of lawyers, and they want me to fire you, and they want you to make a public apology, and et cetera, et cetera. And that night, I get back to my apartment, and my computer is flashing, you know, virus scan, virus Mm -hmm. alert, virus alert. My internet has basically been cut to 28K dial-up. At this point, I'm pretty sure that they've broken into my home. Same thing in the office. I know that they broke into the office, things like this. And you didn't even mean to. It was really like I was talking about Singapore, and I happened to mention just in a passing reference and linking to a Reuters article. Didn't even think about it. And one of the things is, is that you, you, I don't think a lot of Westerners get is just the general sense of fear about saying anything in China. Right. Okay. So give me, give me like an example of the kind of thing you can't say and the kind of trouble you'll get into. Like, uh, like a a mild example to begin with. So the, so the general rule as a foreigner living in China, and I, and I should say this is, this has changed over time with, with Chairman Xi. But when I first got there, the general rule of thumb was you don't talk about what we called the, the three T's, Tiananmen, yeah. Taiwan, and the party, 
Oh, and Tibet, the four T's. Taiwan, Tiananmen, Tibet, and the party. Okay, right. those, were the, those were the four things. So at the time, you could kind of criticize economic policy. You could kind of say, oh, you know, the government should spend more, the government should cut taxes, things like that. That was, that was fine. Now, in China, even that is a, a relatively risky proposition. Even reading Winnie the Pooh is a... Even reading Winnie the Pooh is... Risky. I'll, I'll tell you one story that, that I, uh, I had a journalist call me up a couple years ago and say, hey, I need a pro-party quote from, about something about this issue. And it was, a no, it was a non-controversial topic. It was not one of the four T's. It was not anything like that. And they wanted a pro-party opinion. And so I had, a, I had a couple colleagues that I knew that would be in their wheelhouse. And I said, hey, you know, I got this journalist. I, th- I think it was it was, a ma- it was a major international publication. Mm-hmm. And, and I called up a couple colleagues, and both of them said, no way. I'm, I'm not saying anything. Don't ever ask me again. And at first I was – because, again, I'm not the brightest, brightest guy here – is at first I was puzzled. I was like, you know, hey. And they're like, look, in China today, even if you're saying pro-party stuff – you're doing nothing but creating risk for yourself. You're just going to put yourself out there and you're going to be you're going to be creating problems for yourself even if it's pro party. So it's better to not say anything at all than it is to even say something pro party. But what are, what are the consequential risks of if you were to say something critical of the party publicly, you can be arrested. Can you be imprisoned? You can. You can be. You can be arrested. Absolutely. Just recently, there was a, there was an example of a guy who was thrown in prison for two weeks, and all he did was complain on WeChat about uh, the National Day Parade. He didn't want to watch the National Day Parade. Jesus. Okay. He complained about that on WeChat. Um, it's it's the Chinese version of like Facebook, most widely used social media platform. Threw him in jail. Have you looked into why the Chinese government is like this? Like, is it a cultural thing? Is there is it a fear of losing power? Why is it happening? So I think it is. You know, this this is how communist parties operate in general. I think the the more current and relevant answer is that Chairman Xi is uh, acutely aware of the fact that the CCP, or I should say the Soviet Union, collapsed Mm -hmm. about the same age that the CCP is now. Right. They were on their 13th, 5th year plan. China is in the latter stages of its 13th, 5th year plan. It's going to be its its 14th, 5th year plan is a year or two away. And he believes that the fall of the Soviet Union was one of the greatest tragedies of the 20th century. And to ensure that the CCP has longevity and lives on, he believes that the mistakes of the, of the Soviet Union were in allowing any type of liberalization whatsoever, allowing any type of free thought, uh, allowing any type of free speech. And he is bound and determined that that is not going to happen under his watch. Okay. All right. One of the areas that I'm really interested to learn about, and I've not dived into it yet, is the Belt and Road. And I'm also very interested in what's going on with Hawaii. Um which, where do you want to start? Because is is, they feel connected. Let's start with Belt and Road because okay. that'll kind of provide an on-ramp to, to Huawei. And a lot of people won't know what the Belt and Road is. Yes. 
So you should probably just give a bit of a background so people understand what's going on here. So the Belt and Road Initiative is basically Xi Jinping's idea to basically take Chinese investment to the rest of the world. It's really big in Africa, the Middle East, uh, Southeast Asia, Central Asia. It's a little bit in parts of Europe and a little bit in Latin America, but it's uh, probably its biggest in places that are generally considered to be in Chinese uh, sphere of influence. And I think what is what is notable is that I, I believe the total lending has been probably close to half a trillion dollars or something like that, you know, a, a couple hundred billion, a hundred, uh, 200 billion a year for like the past five years. So you're, you're up, I don't know the exact number mm-hmm. off the top of my head. And it's generally in the, in the, in, it's been concentrated in a lot of heavy industry, infrastructure, mm-hmm. um, ports and ports, things like that. Yes, yeah. exactly. And did I, I'm not sure if it's part of the Belt and Road, but I'm pretty sure something, some, is it Greenland? There's like a whole town that's now Chinese. Yes, absolutely. Because, and, and I, I, I apologize, I, I forget the exact reason, but I do know that I want to say there's some type of like specialty mineral or metal that you can get in Greenland. And so that's the specific reason. And I forget which one it is, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's it. And is this a, is this like a, a modern version of colonialism? Are, are they trying to create like groups of Chinese influence around the world? What, what do you think is going on here? So to be honest, th- this is my sense. So th- there's kind of like this debate raging about whether or not it's uh, this thing, one thing that they call it, that uh, critics have called it is debt trap diplomacy. And it's basically, if I, I'm going to lend you a hundred bucks, I know you'll never be able to repay. Mm-hmm. And then you owe me big and you'll do whatever I say. Okay. There's also this sense of, well, you know, hey, China's lending into countries that can't get capital to build ports and other things like that. Okay. So, so what, what is the reality? A lot of the reality, I think, is probably somewhere in the middle. And so one of the things is, is that a lot of how China operates is basically we're going to do it and figure it out later. Okay. And so that seems to really be a lot of what is going on. Okay, is is that they're, they they started doing stuff and they really didn't know what they were doing in a lot of this stuff. So I don't think it's quite as nefarious that we have this master plan to enslave you and we're going to loan you money. We know you'll never be able to repay. I think part of it is also that they they expect business to work, and this is very common for many countries. Yeah. Their instinct is is to uh, expect business to operate outside of their home country the way that it operates at home. Well, in China, you know, you make a loan and it just gets rolled over in, you know, forever and ever. It never actually gets repaid. But when you lend money outside of your own country, you don't expect it to work that way. Yeah. Okay. And so one of the things, you know, and I'll I'll be a little technical here. So when you lend money for an infrastructure project, a port, a road, an airport, you know, those kinds of things, you're, you, you, they only work financially if you're talking, let's say, a 20-year loan a 30-year loan, mm-hmm. a 50-year loan, and it's at relative, it's, it's, it's at pretty low interest rates, okay? I mean, they just aren't profitable enough to, to repay credit card interest rates at three years, yeah. okay? Part of it is also because if you have an airport, it's going to last 30 years, mm-hmm. okay? So you repay it over, over 30 years. Well, China is going into a lot of these countries, and they're charging not high interest rates, but, you know, high-ish, higher. Mm-hmm. And they're also doing, and this is this is the crazy part, they're doing, like, typically two, five, at the outside, 10-year loans on things that typically take 20 to 30 years to repay. 
Okay. Well, think about it this way. If I'm giving you a two-year loan mm-hmm. to pay off you know, your home, you're not going to be able to repay that. Nope. Okay. And so it's going gonna, it's gonna to blow up. And so there's it, – it's, it, it's not entirely clear if there's – I lean it's probably just general more incompetence than it is and they expect to just roll it over the way they do it in China than it is there's this nefarious master plan to enslave the rest of the world. Right, okay. Okay, so when I've looked at the Belt and Road previously and I've spoken to somebody else about this previously, they said the risk here is the export of Chinese surveillance around the world. Yes. This is obviously something else you've researched as well. Yes. And looking at Huawei, there's two examples I can see. I see the US very resistant to the 5G technology, and then I see the UK where I'm from, uh, they've got their arms open and welcome them in. So it is something we need to be aware of. So can we dive into this? Tell me what's going on with... Sure, sure. So the first thing is 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 one of the things that, uh, that, that Huawei has done. If you look at China Belt and Road, and if you look at where Huawei is, 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 is most active... It's, 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 it's an incredibly stark map, and there's a couple of uh, places that have done maps like this. But it's basically in heavily authoritarian countries. Okay. Okay? Or very weak democracies, borderline, borderline democracies. There's simply not a lot of demand for you know, that, that type of surveillance or uh, questionable financial practices in open democracies. So more, more generally, looking at, at Huawei... The research that I've done, and just just you know, to, to also reference the things that other people have done, in the UK, for instance, the UK has what they call the Huawei Oversight Board, um, which is basically <laughs> the fact that we we need it. The, the fact that you need a an oversight board. Now, the beauty of this of this Huawei Oversight Board is it's technically a government body, and it has you know government civil servants that that that, that work on it, but it's also essentially housed at a Huawei office. And Huawei provides about half the personnel, and actually some of the government officials that oversee it used to work for Huawei. So it's a it's a very dubious um, arrangement to begin with. Okay. And then what happens is is the reports that the, the this this oversight board has been providing because what the oversight board role is to essentially say what we we recognize that Huawei might be a security threat so we're going to provide oversight and make it, make recommendations about what they should be doing and things like that um, to make sure that they're not a security threat. So basically, for the past decade, this this oversight board has been pro- filing these annual reports about we t- we think Huawei should do X Y Z, and almost every year they make the same recommendation: Huawei needs to significantly improve its security. And one of the, one of the ways that the public discussion about Huawei has been sidetracked is we get this crazy idea, and the buzzword is backdoor. Okay. And it's not really applicable to Huawei for one specific reason. If it weren't for bad security, Huawei would have no security at all. So when we talk about back door, we don't need to worry about the back doors. We need to worry about the front door that has been left open and the keys are on the porch. Okay, that's how bad Huawei security is. I've actually been told by, by guys that, were, that would pull apart these machines that they said even a couple years ago, because Huawei, let's say a decade ago, they would they would actually steal Nortel and Cisco uh, equipment, rebrand it, you know, pull out the guts and figure out what was going on, reverse engineer their own. As they said, even a couple years ago, 
you would stumble upon sometimes, it would reference Nortel or Cisco code in a Huawei machine because they had just copied and pasted the control code into their own into their own machines. Right, okay. Okay. And so one of the things is is that Huawei said, well, it's going to take us all this time to upgrade the security. And so here's here's the dilemma just logically that you're left with is you're telling me this this great company who supposedly is is at the global cutting edge of technology and you can't program security. Okay? Forget backdoors, okay? Yep. You supposedly have all these hundreds of patents. You you have spent enormous sums of money on research and development and you can't program BIOS code, source code that makes a secure router, that makes a secure base station. Okay? But this <laughs> this hasn't been talked about that much publicly. Yes. And so this is this is one of the problems is 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 the buzzword the, the people the words people focus on are backdoor. This creates this yeah. in, in people's minds, this very nefarious, this Jason Bourne, you know, this this hacker thing. When really, you know, the biggest problem is the front door. Okay. <laughs> There's just no security on a lot of these devices. The other thing is, and you know, um, not to tout my own research, but as as we were able to analyze these CVs. We see very clearly Huawei employees talking about the offensive things that they're doing. We, we were able to tie some Huawei employees to specific known events of security breaches or intellectual property theft. This is, this is, this is very problematic, and we actually have the evidence to show that, yes, they are doing, they are doing a lot of the things that they're, that they're criticized for doing. Uh, hold on. So if the security is that bad, my... Initial thoughts would be, well, everything should just be a no then. Yes, abs- absolutely. I mean, like, th- why work with them at all? So one of the, and this is this is one of the things that I think many people have have pointed out. So one of the things that happens with a lot of these, a lot of these machines is they get installed, and you might not do it for your, you know, your home computer. Uh-huh. It's probably set to automatic. But what happens to a lot of these security devices, so like the base stations that you know have the antennas that power yep. mobile phones. As security breaches are discovered, what will happen is, is whether it's Huawei or independent firms, they will say, we've developed this patch that will fix this known security problem. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's Huawei or other firms, they will, uh, the, the, the telecoms companies will be charged for these security patches. Okay. Okay. And so what people have, have pointed out is Huawei may sell that network gear up front at a 10 to 15 percent lower, lo- lower price point. If you factor in the life cycle cost of all the additional programming that you're going to have to do, all the additional patches you're going to have to spend, all the additional downtime, it's actually cheaper or at a similar life cycle uh, cost mm-hmm. to buy other other companies' 5G gear. Okay, so starting point is that the security is terrible, but there's a more sinister side to this as well, right? There's yes. a more sinister worry Yes. So basically what we what you can actually see very clearly is is two things. First of all, Huawei actually works very closely and and you know and we can we can demonstrate this going through, you know, the, the CVs of Huawei employees. Mm-hmm. They work very closely with the state. 
Some of these employees actually talk about being representatives for specific agencies, uh, intelligence agencies. One of the employees that, that we found, they, they declared on their resume that they worked for Huawei at the same time that they worked for a unit of the PLA that is in cyber warfare. This is, this is very worrisome. The other thing is is that Huawei is um, within China. They work very closely with the Chinese state to engage in a wide range of, let's say, very oppressive practices. They are one of the leaders in things like facial recognition, mm-hmm. also database and cloud storage, where they are actually actively building, for instance, uh, racially racially driven like Uyghur versus Han, you know, types of facial recognition and things like that, so that they are actively abetting, for instance, what's going on in Xinjiang, as well as you know the censorship regime that that uh, occurs in China. Okay, so the risk here then to. I guess the US allowing for the Hawaii to be deploying their infrastructure is that what they will be using this for listening in and NSA type activity? Yes. So it is like the NSA, but it's it's also very different. Okay. In the sense that we know that China uses its it, it it's its willingness to use, let's say force or at least, you know, various, the, the term in, in, in China is blue, green, yellow, which is, um, they're going to apply you with girls or they're going to apply you with money or something like that so that they essentially own you. Okay. I, I actually had a, a situation myself where they were essentially trying to apply me with girls. I mean, okay. they, they actively do this and, you know, they record these situations. Um, it's, it's, if you, if you remember the Tom Cruise movie, the firm, um, mm-hmm. where they, they, they tape you doing these types of things so that they, that they own you. Neil Bush from the, from the Bush family is well known in China because he, he had been doing business deals in China and he got involved in some stuff and he got, and he had to go through divorce back in the States. And there's this great exchange where his ex-wife uh, attorney is questioning him uh, on something he did in China. And so I forget the exact wording, but it was something to the effect of, so you discovered these two women in your hotel room. Yes, sir. That's correct. And what happened when you discovered them in your hotel room? Well, we had sex, of course. <laughs> so you just discovered two random women in your hotel room and had sex with them. Well, yes. You know, I, I didn't want to be rude. <laughs> okay. Jesus. <laughs> and so they actively engage in this, whether it's to benefit their corporations or push policies that they want. They're, they're much more less constrained about willing to use that type of... Uh, of those abilities. Okay. Okay. So, but the, currently the U.S. has, was it part of the trade war agreements that they've now agreed to allow Hawaii? No, Huawei, Huawei is Huawei is uh, is definitely not allowed in the U.S. Um, okay. and they're on what's called the entity list, which basically means no U.S. firms can trade can trade with them. Okay, and that's probably not going to change them. That is that is very unlikely to change. So wh- then I don't understand why other Western governments are okay with this because it seems so obviously a terrible idea to be working with them. You know, and. and I think one of the things is, and, and and I've gotten into this as as I've dealt more with with European governments and and some other governments. I, I think the developed governments in Asia, specifically like South Korea, Japan, they view China as a very real threat, and mm-hmm. so they're not using Huawei. The European governments, and th- this is what has struck me, is that 
I don't think fundamentally a lot of European governments view China as a threat. That they, I do not think they, for the most part, view China as a real problem. Okay. And so, if you don't view China as a as a fundamental threat to liberal democracies, openness, things like that, it would make sense that you would be willing to work with Huawei. Do you see them as a threat? China and uh, and Huawei, yes, abs- absolutely. And you know, we, we see. I think China is actively trying to push censorship. We we know of threats. I've talked to people in Europe that have told me about being followed by by Chinese agents. We've seen examples of this in Australia. I act I, very much so. And I, I think even more so, I, I think you have to consider, the you know, if you look at Xinjiang, Taiwan, the South China Sea, overseas censorship, I think you have to look at them as not just an economic competitor, um, but I think you have to look at them as, you know, what, what do we as open liberal democracies want to stand for? But people are bending the knee. Hollywood is bending the knee. Yes. Regularly. <sighs> I think the NBA is in a very tough position right now. Very surprised to see a couple of the players. I think LeBron James' response to it I thought was very disappointing. Yes. Um, what do you make of what's going on there? Well, I think one of the, 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 fundamental, the fundamental issue, I think, for a lot of people is, and, and I don't necessarily mean this, and I don't want this to sound as negative as it might sound, but a lot of the, the fundamental difference is, comes down to, I think, money. Because, look, you can make a lot of money in China. Yep. And they are willing to give you a lot of money. They are willing to help you make a lot of money. Integrity Farms. Integrity Farms. So that was highly accurate then. Yes, then, absolutely. Yeah. I, I would love to find – I honestly – I was actually stunned at how accurate, not just on some of the, the major themes, but on some of the details, um, how accurate it was. Right. And part of me, part of me understands. Part of me understands because if if you don't know a lot about China, you can just. It's very easy to say, oh well, this is just a Trump issue. Oh well, it's not as bad as you know. These are just some rabble rousers that are pounding the table. Um, wow, that's. I mean, they're off. It's a lot of money that I'm, I'm having to walk away from. Yeah. And so, a part, a part of me, I don't want to. Th- I don't want to think of everybody that that you know doesn't think the way I do as oh well, they're just a sellout. But I do think a lot of it at the end of the day comes down to money because I mean, heck, it's it's tough to walk away a lot of times from the, the amount of money that people are being asked to walk away from. Well, yeah, I think I mean it must be very difficult. But at some point, if you don't take a stand, we're going to. I mean, I, I hate the idea of creativity being compromised. Yeah. For money, uh, I, I I can't stand the idea of censorship. I find it fascinating how similar to what George Orwell predicted, nineteen eighty four, is actually happening. Yes, right now in China, uh, I, I you know it's crazy. One of the things that always strikes me is whenever you talk to people that say, "Oh, don't worry about that. It's it's not that big an issue." You drill down to, okay, well, what? Why do you want to behave this way with China? Why do you think we should continue to engage or whatever? At the end of the day, whether they have a business or whether it's just we need to focus on the economics, it's about money. Of course. It's, it's about money. And I was actually at, a, at, a, at a, some place recently, and somebody asked one of the speakers, what is something China could do where you would say, okay, I have to draw the line. <laughs> we, we can't do this anymore. I have to draw the line. And the speaker who was advocating, you know, uh, engagement, dealing, trading with China, 
they couldn't they couldn't give an answer. They did not have an answer. And I think it's it's it's, it's my line is probably going to be a little bit different than your line and our mm-hmm. line is going to be a little bit different from from somebody else's line. And that's fine. I think everybody however has to say what is the thing if China does this? I'm going to I'm going to say okay, we, we can't we have to walk away. We have to we have to advocate you know, taking a, a tougher line. We have to be willing to lose money on something with China. Well, there's internal and external things, right? Yeah. I mean, I th- I think personally, the social credit scoring is unacceptable. Yeah. I think what's happening with the Uyghurs is totally unacceptable. It's modern day concentration camps. Yes. So I've already hit that point, but there are internal things that don't directly affect me. It's just as a human being, I'm like, this is terrible. Mm-hmm. It's especially what's happening with the Uyghurs. I mean, I saw the footage that came out recently of the of the trains, and mm-hmm. they had people blindfolded and shaved hairs. It looked like something from Nazi Germany. Yes, and this is happening in modern day. Yes, and, and you know, and if, if you if you follow that specific situation more closely, I think there's very credible evidence that we've seen a real jump in death rates. There's very credible evidence of organ harvesting. Very credible people have done reports on this. This is this is not just speculation. There is hard evidence for for all of this, and this is the type of situation like, you know, we're we're going to have to answer for you know what were we doing with regards to when what China was was doing and how we responded. I just don't think anyone's going to do anything though. I mean, it's, it's already evident people aren't doing anything. Nothing is happening with the Uyghurs. You know, it's it's not like it's not like there's sanctions for the Chinese. What's happening there? It's the only things you read about with it, are with regards to some of the brave journalists who are covering it, or maybe the HRF. It's not even; it barely makes the mainstream news. Yes. Well, let's put it this way: I, I actually hold out a little bit of hope. Okay. That there's going to be uh, that there's going to be some additional movement on that, um, but I actually do fully understand. And it, you know, just from a news coverage perspective, I would love to see more news coverage of this. Because, you know, the, the, the numbers that we're talking about, the scale that we're talking about, the technological assets that are being deployed there are just just astounding and just just absolutely heartbreaking. What kind of things have both blown your mind and broken your heart here? Because if you want to talk to me about the like the, the scariest things. I saw the I saw the same footage where they had just hundreds of people, hundreds of men lined up. And for, for people that haven't seen it, I'm sure you can YouTube yeah, I it can somewhere. Do, yeah. um, and they're basically, I don't know, like in lines of 20 and there's like rows, uh, I don't know how many rows, and they're just blindfolded on their knees as Chinese policemen, security guards kind of circle around them and they're next to a train yard and they're being led into basically boxcars. And we don't know from the footage where they go. Yeah. And I can guarantee you that that China is keeping records of all of of all of those people, individuals. And, you know, you, you look at the crimes that that people are being convicted of. I mean, I say convicted. I use that word very lightly. They're being convicted of, you know, just even communicating with people overseas. I mean, that's it. Just communicating with people overseas. That's their crime. And so, you know, I, I really hope that we do not actually start discovering death camps. But I will say it, it would, it would uh, with what we know they've already done, I, I can't say it, w- it would surprise me if, we, if, if at some point we start discovering that that's been happening. Wow. Well, I think, I think the world would have to react at that point. 
yes. becomes unacceptable. But I'm wondering how much... Is the problem is we've got companies bending the knee right now. And it's, it's very strange, especially in America. You know, you, the Americans have, you know, stand, stand up and very important, the, the Constitution. I'm jealous we don't have a Constitution in the UK. You know, First Amendment rights, Second Amendment rights, all the way through, right? Yet they are allowing those rights uh, the, to be eroded by foreign companies for the sake of money. I mean, it's ridiculous. I've seen people marched out of NBA games for silent protests. No, and, and one of the things, so one of the things that I think is going on just in American society in, in a broader sense is with Trump, with China, with all of these issues, I think one of the things that, that we're doing is, is, is in a way, you know, when you get sick, what happens to your body? Your body expels things. Yep. You cough, you sneeze. And, you know, not to be graphic, but it's because your body wants to get rid of things. Okay. In the same way, I think it's forcing us as Americans to, to really reevaluate. What is it that, that we value as Americans? Yep. What are the principles that we want to stand for? And not that you ever wish that somebody gets sick. You, you know, you never cross your fingers and say, wow, I hope they get sick, you know, but Hopefully this is this is really causing an awakening of like, wow, what 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 is it that we want to be as Americans? You know, I, I think it's easy to say that yeah, yeah, we might have drifted away from, you know, what we wanted to be, um, what we stood for as a nation. And so not just internationally with China, but domestically, you know, what are what are the principles and values that that that, that we want to stand for? Um, and yeah, w- there's going to be times where, where we're going to have to make some tough decisions about we need to walk away from money. So how do you think this is going to play out? I actually hold out hope first with the Trump administration, first of all, that we're going to get the, the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act passed. Which is great. I was talking to Denise Ho about that this morning. Yes. I'm hopeful that we're going to get that passed. I do still think there is hope that there is going to be some type of action taken on uh, Xinjiang, whether it's legislative or whether it is regulatory that, mm-hmm. that Trump can enact without legislation. Yep. I don't think that's quite as likely just at the current state of affairs, but I definitely don't think it's uh, a lost cause at either. So I think there's there's more pressure that needs to be brought. And I think as much as anything, I think what, it, what it, I'm very hopeful about is, especially with the NBA issue, the NBA really bungled their response. But you've also seen the NBA say, no, we're not going to fire Daryl Morey. And no, we're not going to tell him he can't say that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yesterday, Shaq, who, who does have Chinese endorsements, I'm told, uh, I don't know which ones, but I'm told he has Chinese endorsements, said, no, we're going we're gonna to stand up for this. Yeah. Amazing, um, and so you've seen it with Quentin Tarantino, and so I'm I'm hoping that it's causing, you know, kind of like with a cold. I'm I'm hopeful that it's causing. Geez, what do I as a business, you know, I'm not I'm not I'm not going to advocate every business should pull out of China. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do that. I will absolutely say every business needs to reevaluate. What are the trade offs I'm going to be making, mm-hmm. and I need to be able to justify that on multiple levels. So, okay. So for you now, then what does it mean? What, what, what is your career right now? Because obviously <laughs> if you're here, you're more of an activist, but I'm guessing historically you're still a professor. What happens for you now with all this? 
So I live in Vietnam now, and I am still actively pursuing um, this Huawei and China type research. Okay. Um, one of the the few professional skills that I think I actually possess is I'm able to find and analyze. Chinese data and what's going on in in China. And so one of the things is, you know, like you mentioned Xinjiang, for instance, I think one of the things that just hasn't happened yet is there hasn't been that NBA moment with Xinjiang yet. And I think if, uh, if, if we can, if we can, if whatever, however it might happen, if there could ever be that NBA moment with Xinjiang, I think people would be so repulsed that you would see an almost instantaneous 180 for a lot of countries. Well, that was why they were so disappointed with the footage because the footage came out. And me, for me, that was very scary. I shared it out. But it was like, I mean, Sky News in the UK it was like the fourth, fifth article, and then it disappeared. You know, no one's really talking about this. Yeah. And, you know, like, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, it, you know, uh, Gary Kasparov was talking mm-hmm. today. He says, you know, and I, I love this analogy, and I use this analogy myself, is a lot of times it's just like standing at that rock and just ping, hammer, 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 and you just go and go and go, and then you finally get to that, you know, NBA moment. You know, a GM tweets out something random. Yeah. And all of a sudden you have this, you know, it's on everybody's mind. Yeah, well, everyone has to make a decision now. Everybody has to make a decision. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so what's what's coming up for you then? And also, if people want to find out more about what you're doing and follow your work and your research, how, how do they find it? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter. Integrity uh, Farm CEO is the, is the current <laughs> handle. Uh, my Twitter username is Baldings World, uh, and then I also do uh, more of what I've been trying to do with my research is actually just kind of trying to let's say go beyond what journalism does, but distinctly less than. I don't want to be the professor that reads, writes the papers nobody nobody reads. Yeah. I want to I want to write those things that are going to have an impact about what's going on. The project that we're currently working on is Germany is considering letting Huawei into their system. Okay. And so we're absolutely going to be targeting in the comment period uh, using some of the data we have to basically try and show Germany why they should not allow Huawei into their networks. Wow. Okay. Well, listen, all the best with it. It's fascinating to hear about. Hopefully we'll do this again in the future. Absolutely. I I, I come I drop by London ever so often. So, But then let me know. Yeah, I will. Definitely let me know. I mean, I'm not in London. I just, you know what it's like. You just say London so people know. Yes, yes. But I'm 30 minutes away, so it'd be great to catch up again. Sounds great. Thank you for listening to Defiance. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Christopher. I do want to say a big thanks to him for coming on the show. The Belt and Road and the Hawaii expansion is definitely something of concern. I'm also particularly concerned about the persecution of the Uyghurs, which I think is truly shocking, and I think raising awareness is critical. I will be looking to cover the plight of the Uyghurs in a future show. Also, before we close out, I do want to say a massive thanks to my sponsor, Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. Find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com.